0: Welcome to the Women and Public Policy Program Seminar Series podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at the Women and Public Policy Program, which largely means I get to host this seminar, uh, which is uh, really a treat during the week, because um, throughout the year, we have these wonderful speakers coming in. And um, it has been my experience that attending multiple seminars, you'll see um, themes, intersecting themes and ideas um, kind of building on one another, even, even though the, the uh, presentations are so diverse. Um, it is our tradition to have one of our own launch uh, the seminar every year, and this is a particularly, um, uh, we're particularly lucky this year to have Derek Cohen, um who is a professor here at the Kennedy School, uh, presenting on her new book, uh, Rape During Civil War. Uh, Dara is on the fact that here. She is a scholar and teacher in um, international relations and security. Her work has been um, very important. I won't give away any of it but in understanding uh, the kind of functions, of re- reconceptualizing um, functions of uh, sexual violence uh, in, in wartime. One of the things among many accolades I'd like to highlight, she's, she's widely published in top journals. She's one of our um, junior faculty that we're kind of most proud and excited about but relevant to this group um, I'd like to highlight that um, in 2011 she won the American Political Scientists Association's award for the best dissertation in women in politics and I don't think that it's an understatement to say that she is really already beginning to shape the field in how they are uh, the security field is looking at uh, issues of gender and uh, sexual violence so I'll stop there and welcome up Dara thank you
1: very much Thank you so much for that very generous introduction. Um, And thank you to everyone for coming today to the first uh, seminar talk of the year. Um, I also wanted to thank WAP very much for supporting um, some of my research for this project and also um, on some of my related work, also on themes of rape and and sexual violence. So um, I'm very honored to to open the the seminar series. Um, As Hannah mentioned, what I'll be talking about today is is my new book, which just came out three weeks ago. Um, and it's the culmination of about 10 years of research. It started as my dissertation and then um, morphed into my first book project. Um, So what I'll be doing today is giving a bit of an overview of what I talk about in the book and then talking a little bit at the end about some of the policy implications of of this work. Um, So I thought I would start by just taking kind of a step back and and thinking about kind of the, the policy discourse around issues of rape and sexual violence um, since I started working on this project in 2006, there's been just an explosion of interest, um, particularly in the policy world. There, there had been a sort of core group of scholars, many of them kind of feminist scholars who have been interested in this issue for a very long time. But um, the policy world kind of stood up and uh, started taking notice just over the course of the past few years. Um, this was spurred in part by a, a sort of friendship between um, William Hague, the former British Foreign Secretary, and Angelina Jolie in her capacity as one of the um, UN people that are um, most interested in this particular topic. And together they hosted uh, a big event a few summers ago in London, this global summit that was supposed to be focused on ending sexual violence in conflict. Um, the global summit is- itself was very expensive. It attracted a great deal of... Um, of uh, critiques around um, being somewhat ineffectual, I guess. Um, But nonetheless, I think it's fair to say that there's been a huge amount of interest in this topic. Um, On this slide is also displayed a couple of the other international campaigns that have been focused on issues of rape and sexual violence in wartime. Um, So, uh, This is all great, I think, particularly from the perspective of someone who cares deeply about this issue. There is a huge amount of will to try to do something about the problem of rape and sexual violence in wartime. Um, And there's a huge amount of donor dollars that are starting to get spent, um, particularly on issues of prosecution and closing the so-called impunity gap, um, which I think is an important goal, although something I've been somewhat critical of. And I'll say a bit more about that at the end of um, the talk. Um, One of the things that concerns me, though, about all of this policy attention is that there are still a huge number of open questions, just on the most basic level, about where, first, what is rape and and sexual violence in wartime? There's no consensus definition. Um, Second of all, where has it happened? Um, And so that's one of the the things that I wanted to tackle with this book project, is trying to be systematic about how we talk about uh, rape in wartime. And, and to ask some more social science-type questions about how we explain variation, which is to say, how do, why do some wars have more rape than others? So um, turning to the central questions that I discuss in the book project, first is this basic question, when and where has wartime rape during civil conflicts actually happened? Um, I should say there are some scope conditions on, on this book project. Um, I, I focus on contemporary civil wars. Uh, which is only one type of conflict, although civil wars are the, the most um, frequent type of conflict in the contemporary world. Um, and I focus also on more, more recent civil wars. So um, in the book, I look at all civil wars between 1980 and um, 2012. Uh, The second question that the book looks at is this puzzle, which is why, even within the context of the same war, do some armed groups commit rape on a large scale and others never do? Um, So the research for this book draws on um, my field work in three post-conflict countries, in Sierra Leone, in East Timor, and in El Salvador. And I think um, to illustrate this uh, second puzzle, I'll just sort of briefly say something about the El Salvador case, and I'll return to that a bit more at the end of the talk. Um, So, uh, uh, sorry, the Sierra Leone case is what I meant to say. Um, Sierra Leone is is largely considered to be a mass rape war, right? We believe that there were thousands of women raped during the Sierra Leone Civil War. but if you sort of open the black box of that Civil War and start to look at who were the perpetrators of rape during the Sierra Leone Civil War, there were a number of armed groups that fought in the, in the Sierra Leone Civil War, something like five or six, depending on how you count. But only one of those armed groups committed the vast majority of the rape. Um, and the, the armed groups that were involved in the fighting d- look demographically nearly identical. So that's the nature of the puzzle that I'm trying to understand through this project is why do some armed groups commit um, Uh, rape and others seem not to. Um, The reason I'm I'm looking at this is both um, from my interest as a political scientist, from the perspective of political science theory, but also because I think from a policy perspective it's really important for us to understand um, the root causes of, um, of rape and wartime in order for us to create effective policy. Um, So ultimately the book ends up being something of a critique of this dominant narrative, this sort of common story that we often tell about rape in wartime, which is that it's used often maybe implicitly, sometimes explicitly described this way, by commanders as a kind of tool, weapon, or strategy of war. Um, What I end up arguing in the book is that may be true in some cases, and there are some well-documented cases where we can see that that has happened. But more frequently, more commonly, um, I think that is not, in fact, the case. And so I'll explain a bit more about what I mean in a few minutes. So for the rest of the talk today, I'll be talking a bit about the motivation for this particular project, reflecting a bit on some of the previous research, particularly in political science, around um, how civilians are abused in the context of wartime. Um, I'll then talk about some of the the dependent variable, which is the looking at variation in rape during contemporary civil wars. Um, I coded some new data as part of this project, and I coded both how bad was rape in this particular um, war, and I coded this on the level of the the year, the conflict year, and also who is reported to have perpetrated it, whether they were state actors or non-state actors. Um, I then discussed some of the ways that scholars, including myself, have sought to explain this kind of variation. I'll look at some of the macro-level evidence, some of the statistical evidence that I present in the book project, and then turn to the micro-level evidence, which draws on my field work, which again was in um, these three post-conflict countries and was mainly focused on interviews with ex-combatants, trying to understand, um, depending on which armed group they had been affiliated with, trying to understand how rape was perceived by the members of their group, whether it was tolerated, punished, encouraged, etc. Alright, so turning first to the motivation for the project, much of the previous research in political science um, on civilian abuses during wartime has been focused on one type of violence, uh, which is to say killing or lethal violence. Um, and I've cited here some of the kind of most important works in this field, Stasclavis's work, Jeremy Weinstein's work, Ben Valentino's work. Um, and this is in part for the kind of simple reason that. Lethal violations are somewhat easier to measure than our non-lethal violations, right? Just to put a point on it, to put a fine point on it, um, you're killed once, right? So you sort of can do a body count, and you can say something about how lethal one war was versus another war. Um, That becomes much more complicated if we're talking about forms of of non-lethal violence, so I'll say more about that in just a second. Um, A lot of this previous research also assumes that there's a correlation between lethal and non-lethal violence. So when we observe that there's been a lot of killing in a war, well then it must be the case that there was a lot of, say, um, rape or other forms of sexual violence um, or amputation or other forms of civilian abuse. Um, And fundamentally that's an empirical question. And as scholars have started to collect more disaggregated data on what actually happens to civilians in the context of wartime, people have started to really cast doubt on whether there is such a clear correlation between different forms of violence. Um, that's one of the things I ultimately argue in the book. Um, killing and rape often isn't closely correlated in the context of wartime. Um, an additional problem with some of this previous research is that lethal violence is now it's quite well established in the literature. Lethal violence is not something that's randomly experienced by war-affected populations. When we look at gender-disaggregated data for who dies as a direct result of wartime violence, the vast, vast majority of people who die um, in that way are men. Are In fact, not just men, but are military-age men, military-age men, so some, somewhere between the age of 15 um, and, and 30. Uh, so the ultimate result of a lot of this previous work, at least in political science, um, when we're thinking about um, abuse of civilians in wartime is that we've really focused, in particular, on a form of violence that, one form of violence that affects really just a subset of the war-affected population. So that's one way that I see this work filling a gap in some of the previous literature. Um, Turning more specifically to some of the previous research on wartime rape, a lot of this work has been dominated by case studies. Um, And so scholars have tended to study the same cases again and again. So um, if you were to do a Google Scholar search for rape in wartime, you would see tons of previous work and writing on Rwanda, on Bosnia, and increasingly on DRC. Um, A lot of previous scholars argue that sexual violence um, and rape during wartime is ubiquitous, that it happens in every conflict, that there's really not much variation to explain here, Um, whereas others, like myself, see actually quite important variation between cases, and not just between cases, but even within cases, so we start to look at who actually is perpetrating rape in wartime. Um, so overall, this literature, the kind of previous literature on, on wartime rape, has identified a, a great number of uh, mechanisms of stories about why we see rape in wartime. Um, one scholar counted at least a dozen, a dozen different explanations that range from things like biological explanations, um, that is that men are evolutionarily prone to rape, perhaps, um, to the type of war, which is that um, sort of lessons drawn from Rwanda and Bosnia, these were bitter ethnic conflicts, so perhaps it's the case that ethnic wars are more likely to be characterized by mass rape and wartime. Um, Ultimately though, there's been very little systematic testing of these (coughs) arguments across the universe of cases, which is what I seek to do in this project. Um, so as I was kind of getting started in this um, book project, one of the things that I end up doing in the book is, is kind of, um, basing the, the book around three puzzles uh, around uh, issues of wartime rape, at least as, as I see them. Um, the first is that, and I should actually take one tiny step back and say, so the, another scope condition of this project is that I'm focused in particular on rape in wartime, not the myriad and sundry different uh, ways that um, sexual violations can occur. Um, So we have things like forced marriage, um, sexual slavery, as we've seen reports um, in recent reports in The New York Times of, for example, what ISIS is involved in right now. Um, There's reports of forced sterilization, forced abortion, forced pregnancy, many, many, many different ways that, um, and, and again, there's no kind of consensus definition of what sexual violence actually is. So for the purposes of clarity, what I end up doing in this book is focusing on one type of violation, which is rape. Um, and in particular, the rape by armed combatants against civilians during wartime. So there's also people that study sexual violations within um, armed organizations as well. Um, That's not what I'm looking at in this project. So um, some puzzles that come up when we're thinking about rape in wartime. Um, The first is that although we know from a variety of contexts that rape in peacetime is very infrequently multiple perpetrator rape, so, if we look at uh, reports of gang rape, multiple perpetrator rape, in the context of the US, something like 2 to 8%, 2 to 6% of annual reports in the US of, um, of rape are multiple perpetrator rape. And that actually is true pretty much um, cross culturally, cross nationally. Um, When we start to look at the ways that uh, wartime rape has taken place, start to disaggregate the forms of of rape that can occur during wartime, there is a a massive uptick in reports of gang rape in wartime. So again, looking at the case of Sierra Leone, although Sierra Leone is similar to the United States, um, during peacetime, something like 6 to 8% of reported rapes in peacetime are multiple perpetrator rape, during the war. Um, something like 70 or 80% of reported rapes by armed combatants um, were gang rapes. So there's a puzzle here, and that's, that's true in a number of the conflicts that I study, and a number of conflicts that others have studied as well. So there's a, a big uptick in reports of gang rape in, in wartime. So I think any explanation that is trying to tackle why we see rape in wartime has to deal with this, this change in form um, uh, during, during wartime. Secondly is a question around that many people have asked, not just about wartime rape, but many Holocaust scholars, um, scholars of other types of, of abuses and atrocities. How is it possible that seemingly ordinary people, once they're forced to become members of armed organizations, can then go on to commit brutal acts of violence? And that's what um, we'll end up seeing throughout the presentation today, that many of the people who are perpetrating acts of rape in wartime are not um, criminals, They're just very ordinary people. Um, So what happens once they join armed groups that produces, in some cases, mass rape? Um, And lastly is a puzzle around who actually is perpetrating rape. Many of the the explanations that we currently have assume that there is a male perpetrator and a female victim, Um, and as we become Kind of more rigorous and how we collect data on who is perpetrating wartime atrocities and who suffers from wartime atrocities, the picture is actually much, much more complicated. So we've seen um, through a, a number of recent studies that have been published in very prominent outlets, like the Journal of the American Medical Association, that there are much larger numbers of male victims of rape and other forms of sexual violence, for example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, than we had ever expected. Um, and similarly, there are reports of female perpetrators, and in some cases, um, fairly substantial portion of reports. So um, I'll talk a bit more about Sierra Leone in a moment, but something like 25% of the reported gang rapes in Sierra Leone had um, female perpetrators. There was at least a woman present at um, that particular incident. So that's another puzzle. Um, So to start to get at how we might answer some of these questions, I collected an original data set um, again, I used a very restrictive definition of sexual violence, um, which is to say rape. And I collected these data from a sort of commonly used source amongst uh, quantitative human rights scholars, which is an annual report released by the US State Department. Um, which releases a report about human rights practices for every country in every year, which makes it a really ideal source for people like me who want to collect kind of systematic data on particular types of human rights abuses. Um, That's not to say that it's without its flaws and many people are critical of using this this particular source and I'm happy to talk a bit more about some of the biases that we may see in this particular source in in Q&A if people are interested. Uh, But it does have the great benefit of allowing me to use the same source for the entire study period. Um, the other thing that I did is I checked the codings um, so I ended up coding a number of things from the, from this um, from this source I coded basically how bad was rape and this was wartime rape in, in this particular conflict I coded that on a scale of zero to three which I'll say more about in a minute second who committed it were they were they reports of state actors or non-state actors um, and that basically ends up helping us understand how rape um, has has varied by conflict and also by armed groups within conflicts. So over the next couple of slides I'll just show some sources of variation, um, which is an important first step from the social science perspective because we need to establish um, that there is in fact variation, right? This is not a constant, that rape is not just something that exists in every year of every war. so here's a quick summary of the, of the coding rules in the next couple of slides. Where there's a zero, that means I did not code sort of any reports of conflict-related rape in that particular conflict or that particular conflict year. Um, and that goes all the way up to a three. So where you see a three, these are the kind of notorious cases of um, very widespread, um, sort of massive levels of, of rape during contemporary civil wars. Um, so this first slide shows the 91 wars that are in study period. Um, and just very simply displays the number of wars at each of these levels And so the first thing that we can notice here is that there is in fact a great deal of variation, right? There are some wars that for, for none of the conflict years was there ever a report of conflict-related rape um, and then that goes all the way up to a set of, of of wars in which uh, rape was reported to have been on a massive scale. Um, Those are in the gray box over there on the side. The number next to some of those countries, uh, Somalia and India, are that there were two um, civil wars in this study period in that country that were reported to have massive levels of of rape. Um, Another way of looking at these data is to look uh, temporally. So this figure shows the number of conflict years, um, which is about 1,000 for each of the years in the study period between 1980 and 2012. And these, um, here are the levels again. So this is no reports of rape in that particular conflict year all the way up to massive, reports of massive rape. Right? Um, And each of these bubbles and their corresponding size tells us how many conflict years are at each of these levels. So we can notice a couple of things here. Um, The first is that starting in about the early 1990s and every year since then, there's been at least one Uh, conflict that has had reports of massive levels of rape in wartime. Um, So um, uh, another thing to notice here, and this is one of the critiques of the State Department report, is that people really didn't care that much about rape starting in 1980. And so perhaps it wasn't being reported because no one was really paying attention. Um, And that might be true, and I think I'll say something more about that in just a minute. But we can see that even starting in the early 1980s, there are at least some reports of rape at fairly high levels, right, this sort of two level, which is just... Um, which, re- which reflects that there were reports of rape were quite common. Um, so the, the variation that's displayed in this particular figure um, is actually the source of some controversy. Some activists and people in the policy world argue that war is getting more dangerous for women, and they will use data like this to say, "Look, we've had kind of more reports; rape, rape is being described in a lot of our." kind of most um, rigorous human rights reporting in sort of worse terms now than they were, for example, in 1980. Um, other people argue, well, really what we're seeing here is people care a lot more about this <coughs> issue over time, we're getting better at trying to measure this, um, we're using a number of best practices in terms of surveys, um, and data collection mechanisms, and that's why we see it. So actually, this is good news, right? We're probably uncovering rank that was hidden in the past. Um, I'm I'm agnostic in this fight other than to say that these are at least what one of our most important data sources uh, tell us um, about how rape has varied over time during Civil War. Um, So how have scholars sought to explain why rape happens in some conflicts and not in others? Um, There are three sets of arguments that I consider in the book project. Um, The first is a set of arguments that I call arguments about opportunism or greed. Um, this, in part, reflects some of, I think, our most common conventional wisdom, which is that when war happens, peacetime norms collapse. Maybe laws are no longer um, adhered to, and there's there are young men sort of roaming the countryside. Maybe they have access to drugs and alcohol they didn't have access to before. They're armed, and rape is going to be the obvious result of of that. Um, and I think if you if you read through a lot of the news reporting on rape in wartime, you see at that sort of as an implicit argument in a lot of the ways we talk about rape in wartime. Um, Others of these arguments come from the political science literature. There's some scholars that argue that when armed groups are funded by certain types of resources, when they have access to drugs or diamonds, that those groups um, will attract kind of bad types of fighters, right, that people who want to join an armed group in order to gain access to drugs or diamonds are the same kinds of people that that may be seeking to rape. Right. Um, So that's kind of the recruitment story. Um, And lastly is another sort of twist on that, um, on looking at the ways that armed groups are funded, which is that um, when armed groups don't have to essentially ask civilians for support, um, for material support, and they they have um, support just through things like drugs and diamonds, then then they are able to abuse civilians. They don't really have to care so much about pleasing the population, they're able to abuse civilians, and that's part of that abuse frequently um, is, is rape. Um, a second set of arguments is around ethnic hatreds. And um, this is a sort of common set of arguments that comes out of lessons learned from Rwanda and Bosnia in particular, which are again the two kind of most studied recent cases of rape in wartime. Um, and so scholars have argued that it's possible that rape may be more likely in the context of ethnic conflicts, where rape is used as a kind of signal to the opposing ethnicity. Um, Um, It may be more possible in the context of ethnic secessionist wars where a a part of the country is attempting to secede and again rape is maybe used as some kind of signal to to demonstrate that sort of life together in this country is over. Um, And lastly, it may be used as a tool of genocide. So um, some feminist scholars have argued that even absent lethal violence, rape may be a form of genocidal violence um, for a number of reasons, I can talk more about that in Q&A Um, Lastly is a set of arguments that I think are probably most prominent right now in the policy discourse, which are around gender inequality. Um, And scholars here argue that in countries that have lower levels of gender equality, um, where women have fewer social, political, and economic rights, this puts women at risk during wartime. Um, And then again, um, sort of relating to this kind of first argument around the collapse of the state, we may be more likely to see an increase in rape. I should say that this is not an exhaustive list of every possible um, explanation for why we see rape in wartime, um, but it's a list of, I think, some of the most important and importantly for the, for the project of this, of this book, um, testable uh, arguments that I explore in the, in, um, in the book project. So I have a, a new argument, which I call in the book, combatant socialization. So in the next few slides I'm gonna talk a bit about um, this alternative argument and then I'll start presenting some of the data that looks at my argument and and also some of these other um, arguments from the previous literature. So my argument is that armed groups that randomly recruit their fighters by force, which is to say abducting them off the streets, which actually is fairly common in contemporary wars, um, face a really serious dilemma, which is this question of how can they then go on to create a coherent armed group from um, a group of people that have been sort of forced, in some cases beaten or otherwise abused, um, and, and forced to join. Uh, in contemporary wars, we can see sort of two ways that people are forced to join in this, in, in through abduction, uh, or through um, forced recruiting. The first is abduction, which often is very random, violent, and very sudden. So an example of this is the Salvadoran Armed Forces, uh, during the Salvadoran Civil War would go into a movie theater and just kidnap everyone who was everyone who was male and of military age and all of a sudden they were part of, of the Salvadoran armed forces so that that's one example um, another example, another type is a kind of weaker form, which we can think of as a form of coercion, um, which allows some degree of agency, is often much more gradual, and is frequently facilitated by social ties. So an example of this is the is the CDF, which was one of the armed groups in Sierra Leone. They would go into a village and say, "We're coming back in five days. We would like three people in this village to join our armed group." Um, so again, we can see it's it's. Um, there are sort of an implicit threat of violence, but it's not quite as, as sort of sudden. I think this actually this distinction turns out to be quite important. Um, I'll show you in, in, in just a moment how. Um, what I ultimately end up arguing is that the level of cohesion, the level of social ties in, 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 in a group, is a very important determinant of the level of group violence that the group then goes on to. Um, commit, and it will ultimately enable the group to function on just the, the most basic level. So what I ultimately end up arguing in the book is that rape is actually a unit level phenomenon, and it's used <coughs> as a socialization practice by combatants who need to trust each other but who may not know each other or have any, anything on which to base their trust, sort of absent these displays of, of sexualized violence. Um, the literature on a, a number of other types of institutions, including street gangs and prisons, have made similar kinds of arguments. That institutions that have a, cons- a sort of constant influx of new members or strangers um, into the group will sometimes turn to the sort of costly group violence in order to help organize the structure of the group. Um, there is a scholar named Donna Winslow who has a similar argument about the um, now defunct Canadian Airborne Regiment that had a scandal um, in which the members of the Canadian Airborne Regiment, um, who have to sort of jump out of airplanes and do other kind of terrifying things together, um, were also involved in um, a scandal in which they were um, sort of performing humiliating sexualized acts on each other. So it's, and what she ends up arguing is that those acts served as a non-conventional method for promoting unit cohesion. I make a very similar kind of argument in a very different sort of context, where in this case, the, these humiliating um, sexualized acts are directed towards kind of, um, civilians. Um, so I argue that gang rape is, is one mechanism, not the only mechanism, but a particularly effective mechanism, I think, um, to help create um, and increase unit cohesion. Uh, I ended up drawing quite a bit on some of the criminological research on gang rape in the peacetime context, and there's a number of lessons that come out of of that research that I think are quite pertinent to the context of wartime. Um, The first is that we know that gang rape, from reports um, made by perpetrators, gang rape raises the status of perpetrators vis-a-vis other perpetrators. So if you participate in a gang rape, perpetrators often, um, often share and to researchers that it sort of raises one's social status if you also participate. Um, perpetrators also report that the victim is often not the target per se, but rather is a vehicle of some sort um, for allowing the perpetrators to relate to one another. Um, and lastly, the criminological literature tells us that perpetrators of gang rape are quite different from perpetrators of single rape, or people who perpetrate rape just on their own. Um, and they are much less pathological, much more sort of normal or ordinary, um, maybe would never perpetrate a rape on their own. So there's something about this sort of this, this, this social nature of a gang rape that um, I think is very revealing. Um, one of the things I grapple with in the book and that I'm often asked when I present this work is, but why rape? Why not something like chess, or soccer, right? Why do we need a sexualized form of violence in order to create social bonds between uh, people who don't know each other? Um, And what I end up arguing in the book is I rely on some of the um, psychological research which suggests that there really are a large number of of contexts in which sexualized violence um, helps convey meanings that other acts do not. Um, And So scholars have studied this kind of phenomenon in fraternity houses, in prisons, and in gangs. Um, and the consistent finding is that groups of men or groups of mostly men use sexual violence as a means for sort of sorting and organizing groups. Um, another important finding here, and this relates back to the kind of strong form and weak form um, is that when this uh, psychological uh, literature has found that when experiments have found that when men's masculinity is threatened, they're more likely in, in the course of a sort of laboratory experiment to have their next, when they're allowed to choose a next task, they're more likely to choose a task which involves physical aggression um, and in some cases sort of sexualized physical aggression than they are to do something like playing chess or doing a crossword puzzle when allowed the choice. So there's something about recapturing kind of um, diminished, a diminished sense of masculinity. And I think that's especially important if we're thinking about the process of abduction. It's almost hard to imagine an act that is more um, threatening to one's masculinity than simply being abducted off the street and forced to join an armed group. Um, Gang rape, I ultimately argue, is quite a costly form of group violence. And this is in contrast to a lot of the the previous literature and some of our policy discussion around rape, which is frequently treated as just a very cheap weapon. So we often see things like um, Eve Ensler, the playwright and activist, who has written quite a bit about rape, who will say things like, um, well, rape is a very cheap method, an easy method of warfare. doesn't require advanced weaponry. Um, it's incredibly uh, powerful, as, as Haig is quoted here. Um, but I think one of the important points here is that if rape were so cheap and were so effective, then we should probably see even more of it being used than actually we do. right? I think in some ways, these arguments sort of overpredict predict the, the use of rape that we actually observe. So it's important to consider some of the risks that perpetrating groups um, often face. And of course there are things like reputational costs and potentially fears of prosecution in the future, but ultimately what I end up arguing is that those kinds of things don't really affect the sorts of groups that are engaged in abduction and other forms of civilian abuse. And really the fear of prosecution in some distant future, um, that cost is not really rational from the perspective of any one particular potential perpetrator of of rape. Um, So what are some other risks that we might consider um, one, one particular risk that came out of some of my field work in Sierra Leone was sexually transmitted diseases, um, particularly in, in Sierra Leone, syphilis and gonorrhea, which um, ex-combatants would report um, were was quite rampant really in the aftermath of episodes of mass rape, and they had no access to, um, to treatment, to antibiotics. And so participating in these types and um, these types of violence was actually sort of physically, uncomfortable, to say the least, uh, for people who are participating. Um, gang rape also takes kind of longer to commit than other forms of violence. So if you're an armed group and you're choosing from a sort of menu of atrocities that you could potentially be doing, um, gang rape is, is not one that's particularly time efficient. So why, again, sort of raises the question of why gang rape versus not just something else. Um, And lastly, the kind of intimate contact that a a rape requires may raise some of the emotional costs, at least from the perspective of perpetrators. Um, So this is just sort of a brief summary of my argument that really it's the desire to fit in that is a powerful motivator for, for gang rape. Um, and that conditional on being trapped in an armed group, so given that you were um, abducted into an armed group, the benefits of cohesion, and not just the social bonds with your peers, but also the things that go along with cohesion, if we're thinking about an armed group in the, in the chaos of wartime, things, things like access to food and protection, um, outweigh the costs of, of these potential costs of rape. So what I end up doing in the book project is showing a correlation on the cross-national level between reports of abduction and reports of increased wartime rape. Um, and then through my fieldwork, I established the connection that um, between abduction and low cohesion, so um, fighters who were abducted into their groups often report, um, as we might expect, that they didn't feel particularly um, uh, cohered. With the other members of, of their organization, um, and similarly, that low cohesion then seemed to be at least partially resolved by participation in group violence, including um, gang rape. And um, in the interest of time, I think I'll skip over going the, over this in detail. But suffice it to say that I think this um, combatant socialization argument can actually help us answer each of these kind of puzzles that um, it helps us understand why gang rape is so prominent in the context of wartime, It helps us again understand this kind of larger overarching puzzle about ordinary people and what they do in the context of wartime. Um, and lastly, I didn't really say anything about the, the sex of the perpetrators. Um, and one of the implications of this argument is that when women are abducted to serve as fighters into armed groups, perhaps we should also be able to um, observe that women are participating alongside their male peers in acts of gang rape. Um, And that's ultimately what I end up arguing is happening in in Sierra Leone, that women face very much similar pressures as as do men. Um, So quickly looking at some of the the cross-national results from this project, Um, again, over the next couple of slides, what what I'm looking at, again, is the level of wartime rape and who was reported to have committed it, the kind of main independent variable um, is, a, is a proxy for low cohesion, um, which is how did the armed groups actually recruit their fighters? Um, and so what I ended up doing, again, out of the same source, the State Department source, um, is, is coding whether there were reports of either strong or weak forms of forced recruitment. So just straight up kidnapping and abduction, um, often called, called press ganging if it's done by a state force, the, like the Salvadoran forces, um, or weaker forms. Like coercion or even conscription, um, and seeing whether these are associated with with reports of rape. The sample are the kind of large-scale, kind of most deadly civil wars between 1980 and 2012, of which there are around um, 91. Um, Here are the additional variables that I controlled for in the statistical analysis and each of these capture kind of some aspect of some of these competing arguments. So uh, around opportunism and greed, ethnic (coughs) hatred, gender inequality, and then some additional sort of standard controls um, that are used in the literature. Um, And the the statistical analysis that I ended up um, doing was um, estimating a series of regressions with wartime rape as the dependent variable. Again, this is a four-level variable. And I looked at what wartime rape perpetrated by state actors, um, by non-state actors. Um, and so what did I end up finding? The tables of the results, if you're interested, are, are in the book, but just for the purposes of right now, I'll just sort of describe the results which is that I find strong support for the combatant socialization argument, which is to say that controlling for all of those other things, um, wartime rape by insurgents and states is associated with the sort of strongest forms of forced recruitment with abduction and with press ganging. Um, I find kind of mixed support for one of the conventional wisdoms, which is again around this idea of state collapse. Actually, state failure um, is associated with um, increased reports of rape by insurgents, as are the kind of types of, of funding, right? So the kind of sort of corrupting um, consequence of drugs and diamonds also does find some support. I think just as importantly, I don't find support for two of the most powerful conventional wisdoms. First is that ethnic hatred is not systematically associated, um, or ethnic, I should say, ethnic war, secessionist war, and genocide is not s- systematically associated with increased reports of rape in wartime. And to be clear, that's not to say that it didn't matter in a case like Rwanda or Bosnia. It clearly did, ethnic hatred. um, Clearly was part of the motivator for violence, including rape in those conflicts. But that if we look at the universe of cases, um, whether or not a war was ethnic does not help us distinguish whether um, that war is more or less likely to have um, mass rape. Um, And similarly, gender inequality. So looking at a number of the admittedly very poor proxies that we use in cross-national quantitative Um, research on gender equality, I don't find that any of these proxies are significant. Um, So what does this mean? Does it mean that it doesn't matter how women are treated? Uh, Is there no connection between gender inequality and rape? No, I want to be very clear that's not what I'm arguing. Um, And in fact, what scholars have found is that these very same proxy measures, fertility rates, various types of women's rights, are strongly associated with the onset of conflict. So countries that have has scored poorly on these proxy measures of gender inequality are much more likely to actually have a war to begin with. But given that a, a large-scale civil war has already started, looking at um, whether variation in gender inequality does not, again, help us explain which of these countries will experience um, mass rape and which will not.
0: Is it, is it clever? So are you able in your DV to distinguish between um, high incidence of uh, Multiple perpetrator, as opposed to single perpetrator, and, and I just would imagine that might be a way to distinguish between the first two hypotheses up there. So, would would opportunism, you would, as you tell the story, opportunism might lead to higher incidence of single perpetrator, whereas your scenario would lead to higher incidence mm-hmm. of group. Is
1: that yes, I, that, so that is. Uh, thanks for the question. It's a great question. Yes, so the that, I think that would be an observable implication of both of those two competing arguments. Um, unfortunately, so this, the State Department reporting often isn't very specific. Right, so it will say something like um, an, an incident of mass rape, or rapes were quite common, um, but only rarely does it report on the sort of level of gang rape versus, I mean, any reports of, of gang rape at all, really. How I end up dealing with this in the book is um, looking at, you know, going back through all the reports and looking for specific reports of gang rape, and what I find is that gang rape is never mentioned at the sort of zero and one level. Um, that gang rape is, at least in the State Department reports, is only mentioned at the two and three level. And so I take that as a, as a sign that when rape is on a massive scale again, it sort of um, goes along with the kind of um, other data that we have, this kind of subnational data on disaggregating different forms of rape and wartime. Um, so another way of kind of interpreting some of the results here is looking at the probability of wartime rape at each of the levels, but so zero, one, two, and three. Um, and, um, and right, and, and holding all other variables at their median values. So you can see that at every non-zero level of rape, the probability um, is greater in cases of, of abduction by rebel groups. Um, and you can see something similar here, where that at every non-zero level of rape, the probability is greater um, when we look at um, state press ganging. So, turning from the kind of cross-national results to the micro-level evidence. So in addition to collecting the cross-national data, I also did field work um, in three countries, in Sierra Leone, East Timor, and El Salvador. Um, and, oh, sorry, yes. Just start, before you move on, um, um, just a quick question on these recruitment
2: <coughs> mechanisms. What do we know about where they come from? I mean, maybe that's where you wanna go here as well, but it feels as if this is a, you know, exogenous variable. But in fact, be, you know, it's kind of it must. It, I mean, just curious. Why do? Why sometimes do we use abduction and sometimes we don't?
1: Yes. So that is a huge open question in the literature, um, and that it will be someone's dissertation, I hope, um, in the next few years. But there's there's kind of just starting to be scholarly research on how we understand why groups um, sort of ask people to join versus force people to join. Um, we don't have a good answer to that. So the kind of way I deal with that in the book is to essentially treat this as a as a type of exogenous variable and kind of bracket that part of the chain um, for someone else to sort of think about. Um, but yeah, it's it's we don't know. Okay. One quick question, just building off of that: did, did you find that it's correlated? With, abduction is correlated with state failure or contraband funding? It's. I have the correlation matrix in the so I don't know off the top of my head, but um, it'd be something we could easily look up. Um, I'm gonna just continue and take Q&A at the end, unless people have sort of um, clarifying questions now, but I, in the interest of time, I think I'm, gonna, um, I'm just gonna move quickly through the micro-level evidence, and then I'm happy to take more questions. Um, so I chose these three particular countries for kind of research design-related reasons. Um, Sierra Leone and East Timor are both cases of mass rape. Um, both in my coding and many other people's codings. But most of the rape in Sierra Leone was committed by a non-state armed group, by um, one of the rebel groups, whereas the rape in East Timor was committed by a state group, uh, the Indonesian military. Um, El Salvador is is an example of um, what we call a negative case, or a case where there actually wasn't mass rape, right? It's not to say there was none, but it was at much lower levels. Um, And the rape that did occur was perpetrated entirely by the Salvadoran armed forces. The the guerrilla group in El Salvador did not commit rape during that war. Um, What I did in each of these cases was do interviews, mostly focused, um, again, on ex-combatants, although I did uh, interview some survivors in some of the places. Um, and trying to explore really this mechanism that I propose on the most micro level. Um, so to answer this most basic question, does rape in fact increase cohesion? Um, does it perform the function that I am arguing that it does? Um, and I wanted to seek to, to try to evaluate support for the observable implications of my argument, but also for um, these other three competing arguments. Um, this slide just kind of quickly summarizes, again, the, the field work that I did, uh, the number of interviews in each case, I actually went to Sierra Leone three times, um, went to East Timor twice, and went to El Salvador once, um, so six trips over the course of about um, a, a six year period, I guess. Um, i also benefited a great deal uh, from not just the, the interviews that I did in the fields, but also from um, other data sources that already existed. So in each of these cases, there had been a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, So I was able to use the data from those Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports. Um, There are many issues in terms of bias in terms with the TRC reports. I'm happy to talk about that a little bit later if people are interested. Um, There also had been some surveys of ex-combatants in some of the places. So I was able to really benefit a great deal from other people's research in some of these places. Um, Since I'm often asked to say a bit more about some of the interviews I did, I'll just take a few minutes to do that. Um, The interviews that I did with ex-combatants were semi-structured, which means that I basically asked the same set of questions to everyone I spoke to. Um, And the questions were focused really on ex-combatants' experiences with violence, right? So I'm I'm trying to understand, um, first, how they came to join their group, and then what was life in this group like? What kinds of violence did your group perform? Um, I did not ask people about things that they themselves had done, right? I don't think that would be, A, approved by the IRB, and B, would really result in data that we could Rely on, right? I wouldn't necessarily um, expect people to report on things that they had done. People are much more likely to report on things that they had seen or heard about or observed. And so that's the way I framed the, the questions. Um, sort of related to issues of veracity, all of the interviews were done anonymously, so I never collected the, the names of the people that I spoke with. Um, and I made very clear that I was not in any way connected. I was sort of an independent scholar. I was not connected in any way to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or sort of the Special Court in Sierra Leone, or anything. Um, I also was not very explicit about the topic. So this is another of research design-related decision. Um, If I had approached people and said I'm doing, I'm writing a book on wartime rape, would you like to talk to me? Very few people would probably say yes. So um, what I did is I presented the the project as I'm interested in hearing about the war from the perspective of the people who fought in it. Um, I also, I didn't ask any question about rape unless the person I was interviewing brought it up first. So a sort of typical way this might happen is um, someone would agree to be interviewed, and I would essentially collect an oral history of how they, where they were from, what their parents did, how they got to join their particular armed group, um, and then they might start describing life in the armed groups. They would say something like, "Oh, I went to this training camp first. Um, then I went to then we went to this village. We attacked this village. Um, so then I would start to ask questions around. Well, what does exactly it mean to attack a village? Um, well, it means that we burned down some of the houses, we stole some of the food, and some people in my, in my group raped some of the women. Um, so as long as they brought up the topic of rape first, I then asked um, follow-up questions. And I was fortunate, actually, both in um, Sierra Leone, where rape was so widespread and so public um, that nearly everyone I spoke to brought it up first. Um, similarly, in some of the other places I, I spoke to, it, I, I did interviews in, at well. as as well. Um, Lastly, people often say like, well, why do you believe what people are telling you? Um, And one reason, again, is that during the interviews, people would often explain their participation, um, in some cases, uh, in acts of of rape and other forms of sexual violence in a way that was counter to their self-interest. So we might expect someone to say, well, I participated in this, but only because it was under threat of death, or I was forced to. I was afraid for my, my own life. And actually, we very infrequently hear that, right? People talk about sort of social pressures, um, fear of ostracization, but not fear of of death um, and/or orders as as another example. So in the book, I devote a chapter to each of these cases, but for the purposes of this um, presentation, I've kind of lumped this all together into some general findings from the the field work. Uh, The first is that most of the rape that was reported was multiple perpetrator rape. And again, if people have questions about data and biases, I've done a lot of thinking about whether it's possible that gang rape is not actually more common in wartime, but maybe just more frequently reported, et cetera. Um, so I'm happy to talk more about that. Um, second, rape was something that was often public or observable by others. And I think this is, this is really key, because if rape is happening sort of behind closed doors as opposed to outside or um, in view of other fighters, then it doesn't serve the function that I um, am claiming it does. Third is this observable implication about perpetrators of both sexes. So um, we see that in cases where women were abducted, in, in armed groups where women were abducted, there are also reports of women participating in acts of gang rape. Um, sort of broadly speaking, that we see that in the armed groups that were reported to have used abduction the most often, that these are the groups that also raped the most often. Um, El Salvador presents a really interesting case that I explore some of the scope conditions of the argument. Um, The FMLN, as I mentioned before, which is the guerrilla group in El Salvador, was reported never to have committed rape. Um, However, they went through a very brief period of a few months where they were getting frustrated with sort of asking people to join this gets back to Iris' question a bit, and decided to start abducting people because the state was doing it, and so in order to keep up pace, maybe we should just start doing what the state's doing. Um, There was a huge amount of pushback and a lot of sort of angst within the organization about whether that was what they should be doing, but this argument would suggest that we should see a brief period of rape during that time, and we don't, right? So this, I think, helps sort of push me to do some thinking around what is, what is it about the FMLN that maybe prevented an outbreak of, of gang rape? Um, and one of the answers is um, around sort of pressures, political pressures, both internally, about how the group saw itself um, as sort of saviors of the people against this very repressive state. Um, and also externally, the United States was putting enormous pressure on El Salvador to kind of curb its human rights abuses, many of which were quite public early on in the, in the conflict. So um, that's a sort of interesting, interesting case. Um, fifth, we also see some temporal variation. So in each of the cases in the book, I look at reports of various forms of recruitment over time and try to trace that against um, reports of rape over time, and we can see some temporal correlation there. Um, I think probably the most important piece of evidence is the interview evidence on rape being actually something that was cohesive and not divisive. So I'll say more about that in just a second. Um, Seventh, I think, is important because often we hear about rape in wartime as something that's ordered. right? Again, getting back to this kind of conventional story that we tell around rape being used as a tool of war, as a strategy of war. Um, What I found instead is that rape, at least in these cases, was mainly organized from the bottom up. We don't hear reports of orders from the top down for kind of overarching (coughs) military strategy. Um, And lastly, I report on on a number of sort of interesting cases of in-case variations that are similar to this El Salvador case. Um, In Sierra Leone, there was one of the armed groups, the CDF, that Gradually over time started abducting more and you can kind of trace over time their reports of rape as well And the argument would predict that towards the end of the war where they were (coughs) shooting the vast majority of their fighters through abduction They should also be participating in a lot more gang rape than they were at the beginning of the war um, and they are Um, And lastly in the case of East Timor there were local Timorese militias, so not Indonesian soldiers per se, but Um, local militias that were supported by Indonesia um, that were groups of press gang strangers. So even though they were all Timorese, they had been sort of forced into these temporary militia groups. Um, And the argument would predict that we should see an increase in rape. And in fact, we do. The highest reports of rape over the entire 25-year conflict was in 1999, during this period of intense press ganging. Um, So turning to the interview evidence, this is just some selections from the book. Um, We can imagine that when people are talking about observing rape or gang rape, that they would report that it was, it was horrifying to them or it was, um, it was, it was disgusting. Um, but instead, actually, many of the, of the people I interviewed described quite the opposite, that it was something that they would sort of laugh about, talk to each other about, joke about. Um, there was a lot of teasing around it and people sort of opted not to participate, which again, in itself, is a really important piece of evidence, you could opt not to participate. And the sort of worst thing that would happen to you is people would sort of tease you about being a homosexual, not that you would be killed, right? Um, So again, we don't see this kind of orders from the top down. Um, Similarly, uh, we had some cases, the commanders in this argument kind of occupy this very sort of interesting ambivalent role, where on the one hand commanders were um, enjoying the benefits, enjoying the fruits, basically, of the cohesion fruits, of of um, having a group of fighters that was sort of more bonded together than they might otherwise be. But also it could be a distraction, was kind of related to some of these risks um, that I mentioned earlier. So um, one of the commanders I interviewed was explaining to me that he was really frustrated in Sierra Leone because one of his men had participated in an act of, um, of gang rape got really sick and was actually un- unable to walk. And so they had to kill him rather than leave him behind. Um, they were worried that he would be tortured and would sort of reveal all secrets. Um, and so he was expressing a lot of frustration about that. Um, so commanders sort of occupied this kind of interesting space. Um, again, we can see on this next slide some strong social pressures to participate. This idea that new recruits really didn't want to do this when they first joined, but they were, they were um, teased, they were mocked. Uh, they were treated like they weren't serious rebels. And actually, we can see this also in some of the interviews that I did with female ex-combatants, where it was so important to be seen also uh, with, alongside your male peers as a, as a serious fighter. right? And so this pr- produced a lot of social pressure to essentially imitate male violence against um, other women. Um, and lastly here at the bottom, sometimes people ask about how, um, how it, like, what does it mean for a woman to participate in a rape? I won't, I won't read this if you're interested, um, there's that, you can read that quotation, there's also more in the book, but um, sort of how women would be involved. Um, over the course of the book, I also, um, in these chapters, consider some of these alternative arguments for wartime rape. I'll just sort of go through very quickly about why I ultimately um, reject these arguments in the, at least the three cases that I study. Um, Arguments around opportunism and greed, if you recall, one of these arguments was about armed groups that um, are funded through uh, drugs and diamonds and how those drugs and diamonds may be attracting kind of bad types of fighters and may be more likely to rape. Um, One thing that we can see, at least in the case of Sierra Leone, is that the vast majority of the people who were members of the RUF, which is the group that committed the vast majority of the rape, uh, were abductees. So these were not the kind of voluntary joiners who were seeking um, riches and also happened to be the kinds of people who are very abusive. Um, Secondly, I on purpose chose three conflicts that are not ethnic wars. Um, So ethnicity doesn't get us very far at all in explaining um, the patterns of violence that we see in this particular case. Sierra Leone kind of is a gray area where some scholars do argue it's a little bit of an ethnic war. Um, But even in that case, um, my interviews with uh, villagers often would identify their co-ethnics as perpetrators of violence, which is counter to what we would expect in a kind of ethnic hatred argument. Um, And lastly is this uh, issue of gender inequality. And this sort of relates back to an overarching critique I make of a lot of the previous literature on wartime rape, which is focused on really macro level factors. So looking at the degree of poverty um, or gender inequality for an entire state and trying to see whether that's associated with whether rape will occur in that particular war. Um, What I argue is that's really looking at the wrong level of analysis that what we need to be looking at is not whether Colombia is more or less gender unequal than Sierra Leone, but rather um, the particular armed groups that are involved in each of these conflicts. And again, returning to the example that I offered at the beginning of the talk, if we think about Sierra Leone and these five or six different armed groups that look nearly identical in terms of their demographics, same tribal backgrounds, same religions, same ages, um, same degree of, of poverty, which is fairly extreme, um, under the same sort of overarching umbrella of patriarchy, that's gen, uh, gender inequality. Gender equality is not something that's very high in Sierra Leone, to say the least. Um, we still see that there's really marked variation amongst these different armed groups about who committed rape and who um, who did not. Um, so in the conclusion of the book, I, um, I argue that I think this kind of analysis supports a new argument that can help us understand how to explain variation in wartime rape, which again is looking at the kind of random abduction of strangers and how this is associated with increased reports of rape. I do want to say it's a probabilistic argument. Really, it doesn't help us explain every single case of wartime rape or lack of wartime rape. Um, And it's also not that um, every randomly abducted recruit will go on to gang rape non-combatants, right? Um, But it helps us, I think, understand at least on this kind of systematic level, looking at the universe of, of cases, um, why some armed groups are more likely to rape than others. Uh, I think it's also important to say that it seems that circumstances really do matter. So one of the conventional wisdoms that I do find support for is the degree of state collapse. When we see total state failure, we're more likely to see um, mass rape, in part probably because this, again, creates some opportunity for people to take advantage of. Um, Similarly, lootable resources like drugs and diamonds do, in fact, seem to be quite corrupting. also, again, don't find any support for some of the conventional wisdom around ethnicity. Um, so what are some of the implications for policy? Um, first, I argue that when we observe that there is an episode of mass rape, or there are high levels of mass rape in a particular war, it, it should not then imply to us that war, that, that rape occurred as a result of some kind of overt military strategy. Uh, that these are really two completely separable concepts. Um, And so uh, I think that's sort of one of my most important implications that when I speak to to policymakers and practitioners, I really try to emphasize. Just because we see a lot of it does not mean that it was kind of directed from the the top down. Um, Why is that important? Well, first I think it has some important legal implications. right? So the kinds of evidence that people often look for when they assume that rape was ordered from the top down is probably extremely rare. Right. We do have some cases that are well-documented, Bosnia being one of them, Rwanda maybe being one of them as well, where we can see that kind of chain of command evidence, um, but that we do not see that at all in a place like Sierra Leone or Liberia or East Timor. Um, I think this is especially important because there's a real focus in a lot of the policy work and a lot of the policy dollars and how they're being spent right now on closing this so-called impunity gap, right? So increasing prosecutions, finding people who have committed rape in the past, prosecuting them now in the hope that this will deter tomorrow's perpetrators. And I think there's a lot of really great reasons why that's important um, and may serve as something of a signal, but I think really it's very unlikely that prosecuting yesterday's Um, perpetrators will serve to deter tomorrow's perpetrators. So um, I I become very uncomfortable when we start sort of framing our sort of policy work around prevention for the future and really what we're talking about is is this real focus on prosecution. Um, Another kind of critique I have of, of the focus on closing the impunity gap is that prosecutions are enormously expensive. So one of my colleagues estimated that each guilty verdict in the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, cost $35 million. Um, and in addition to that, if you actually ask victims and survivors what if they would want to, to hold their perpetrators accountable in the aftermath of, of wartime, um, some of them do say yes, many of them don't. Right? They're really focused on Um, Other things, maybe not even on on the rape that maybe happened to them, Um, many people also are quite critical of the kind of holding up of rape as the worst thing that can happen to a woman in wartime, um, and how that may actually perpetuate a very sort of gendered, um, old-fashioned view of, uh, a very conservative view of of, of rape and, and sexual purity. Um, and so I have a colleague who studies Peru, for example, and she has asked many survivors of rape about sort of what their priorities are. Um, and very rarely, again, do we hear people saying, you know, prosecuting my perpetrator is the top priority. Um, um, so just to conclude the slide here, uh, I think this work also cautions us from kind of drawing too many lessons from some of the cases that are most widely studied. So Rwanda, Bosnia, and DRC. Um, And lastly, one of the kind of clear policy implications that come out of this work that I wrote um, a New York Times op-ed um, last fall about, and also as a critique of this impunity gap idea, um, is that abduction of fighters is often reported, as you might expect, often reported earlier in the conflict than are episodes of mass rape. So, and given that, at least I argue they're strongly associated with each other, it could potentially serve, reports of abduction of fighters could potentially serve as an early warning sign for policymakers to try to see where we might be more likely to um, predict episodes of mass rape in the future. All right, I will stop there. Thank you. Should I feel my my own question. Yeah. Um. Let me start. Let's start here. Thanks. This is so interesting. Thank you for the talk. Um. I'm really interested in your idea of combat and socialization, and I was wondering whether you've given any thought to taking it a step further t- to think about the length of time spent on training um, and kind of socialization prior to going into into combat, and does that make a difference? if one group abducts people, but they, they don't spend any time training and just throw people in, or is there any variation? Yeah, great question. Um, and I, I strongly suspect that the answer is yes. Um, one of the sort of frustrating things about uh, working in this area is that we're just now starting to collect data on the level of armed groups. So there is no sort of easily accessible data set on training practices by armed groups in contemporary civil wars. So people are starting to collect those data now. Um, But what I can say from the cases that I know best, which are the three cases where I did field work, is that there does seem to be um, sort of a strong correlation between groups that are sort of these things sort of tend to go together, right? So groups that are willing to invest time in serious basic training um, in political education and talking to people about the sort of rights and responsibilities of civilians and their attitudes towards civilians. Um, So a group like the guerrillas in El Salvador commit far, far less abuses against um, non-combatants than does a group like the RUF in Sierra Leone, which essentially invested, you know, five minutes Um, in gun training and that's about it so these things do kind of tend to go together Um, I've actually just written an article about this question about other forms of socialization so um, there's a lot of interest in the ways that socialization can potentially be violent um, but also the ways that other forms of socialization so for example whether um, child soldiers before they join or are forced to join armed groups have attended school for many years ahead of time or our regular attendance at church or are members of their sort of tribal secret societies before they join whether those are resources that then those fighters can sort of draw on to resist the social pressures to become violent as members of armed groups so this is all sort of very cutting edge in terms of where the literature is right now but there are psychologists and social scientists of various types that are kind of studying that now but that's sort of the strong suspicion of that's at least my strong suspicion of sort of where the, the literature is headed. Um, let's go to the back So,
3: here. did you get um, data on uh, ages of either of the perpetrators of victims, like child soldiers, and also where, uh, did abduction include drafted state uh, abduction?
1: Yeah, so I include, just to answer the second question first, I look at cons- uh, reports of conscription, right? Because you can think of conscription as a sort of weaker form of coercion. Um, and um, I don't find any association between militaries that conscript their fighters and increased reports of rape. And that may be because, getting back to this first question, militaries that are sort of organized enough to conscript rather than abducting people off the streets are, are also militaries that are investing in training um, and are therefore less likely to commit this particular form of, of violence. Um, in response to your first question about the ages of perpetrators, um, so I, you know, I, I didn't do a, my, my interviews are not uh, a sort of population-based sample, um, so I can't really draw on the sort of pool of people I talk to and say anything systematic. But at least in the Sierra Leone case, there is a really excellent sort of population-based sample of ex-combatants, um, and the, in Sierra Leone, and there, there is a lot of child soldiering in Sierra Leone. But the average age of an of an abductee into the RUF, if this gets to your question, um, was 15. So not quite as young as sometimes our image of a child soldier is, but certainly still a, a, a child. Right? Um, and I think that also, to get back to the socialization question, um, is this part of this conversation that scholars are having around socialization, <coughs> whether children are more susceptible to these kinds of pressures? I think the answer is probably yes. Um, and how that relates to the rest of the project is that, is that armed groups, one thing we do know, um, is that armed groups that abduct by force are much more likely to be using child soldiers than our um, groups that don't. And so these things are, I think, are probably all associated um, with each other. Yes? Yes, I mentioned Martin, you rights.
3: For women dealing with violence, we've been about twenty years here in international. There's a couple of questions that I think haven't been addressed here. First of all, have you worked with any of the people doing research at war colleges or terrorism experts who will tell you how people are molded into the format that we're talking about here, that we'll rape is a part of a systematic breaking down of the line. A, so that's the military. Who the military, ask them what they already know, what they found. B, the US military has just done a major research project on violence, sexual violence in the US military. And so we will have uh, corollaries there. They're actually doing a very good job, a very honest job of incidents of rape and gang rape by Americans on other Americans in our own military. So there's gonna be a huge load of work there uh, to look at. Um, So to break people down in terrorism camps is uh, critical, and rape uh, is critical to breaking people's minds down, breaking down their borders, uh, breaking down their minds, when they are part of being raped and Raping others, it breaks down the lines. So I think it is, in fact, still a methodology by commanders for creating troops, uh, and I think that needs to be taken into consideration quite seriously. Because, as you mentioned, the one commander who was really upset that his his uh, his soldiers had gotten got a wheel or something like over kill him. So the troops are truly under pressure uh, to commit violence uh, together. Now, the reports of the Rwandan women, by the way, tell me that women do not consider not uh, following up on the rape issue as a non-event. They were so important, they were so important that half the elected officials have to be women now. And also, they started up the first UN Security Council uh, effort to include the voices of women and children. And the UN Security Council puts out daily uh, work on issues of women and children in war-torn areas where their rights are being upheld and such like that. I'm wondering if you have included any of that in your work. And last but not least, when you talk to the women, is it not a case of do you want it uh, uh, prosecuted or not, but what are the effects? How has the social fabric of this place been destroyed? So. Not just is it the guys laughing about this and mocking others, but how many arms are missing, how many legs are missing, how many machetes. we can't <coughs> think of any of the psychological, psychiatric terrorism of how you form a military force by completely unwilling um,
0: people. Can I just make a process question? So um, There's only six minutes. Do you want to take a couple of comments and then respond, or do you want to? Okay. So why don't we get a couple of other and then I and I had failed in the beginning to sort of emphasize the. I appreciate that you summed up your comments in a question, and that particularly given that we're tight for time, if we can just take a couple more questions and then um, allow Dara to um, give give answers as much as possible within the time permitted and wrap, that would be ideal. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, Hi.
2: I'm Jia, I'm, I'm a research fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights. And I'm, I'm from University of Pennsylvania for a study. Uh, as a PhD for study social policy, I've been doing research for uh, interpersonal violence and sexual violence in China. So I have a couple of questions, but focus on uh, a quick question for three. Um, so I was wondering if you have uh, like covered such questions in your work. First, if you ask question about like, public health issues, about those perpetrators, if they have been affected by HIV or other sexually transmitted disease. So this will be, if they have been affected by HIV, this war, uh, rape during the war, won't be a costless weapon to fight. And second, um, have asked a question about when they return to their home or their country, uh, they're more likely um, to commit um, rape within marriage or other individual rape uh, in their hometown. And third, uh, I have a question for the perpetrator um, between sex. It is LGBT community, where female against female, was female against male. I, I don't know about that. Thanks. Maybe take one more and yeah.
1: I'll try to answer a bunch.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm having a bit of a hard time wrapping mm-hmm. my head around the psychological acceptance of ordinary people committing um, gang rape, and and basically the fact that we found the motivations, or from your research the motivations between committing another kind of crime, of killing or maiming or something, being driven by a very different purpose, and yet there seems to be a similar kind of psychological acceptance um, after several, that it's something that they laugh about or um, becomes normal. And so I'm wondering if you can you know, talk about, is that psychological acceptance, is that something that's seems to be um, common regardless of the kind of it doesn't seem to be i guess connected to why a certain crime is committed but it seems to be just the happening like the environment that it's committed in um (coughs) does that question make sense
1: I think so. I can do my best. Um, I should say th- that I am a political scientist, so some of the and some, a number of the questions were about sort of psychological processes, and I I'm a consumer of psychological research, not a producer of it, um, and I draw on it in this book. But um, and I, I'll do my best to answer some of the questions. But um, I'm, I'm I myself am not a psychologist. Um, I wanted to say something briefly on military sexual assault issues, um, which similarly, I am a consumer of some of the literature on military sexual assault. Um, but I, I said at the outset that really what I'm concerned with in this project is sexual assault committed by members of armed groups against non-combatants, um, in part because I think the the sort of process and, and the reasons that sexual assault happens within an armed organization is really quite different. Um, Another thing that is sort of interesting about the US military sexual assault case uh, is, we talk about this, I see a couple of my former students in this class, and I actually have a unit on um, sexual assault in the US military in in my course at the Kennedy School. Um, But one of the sort of interesting things that often gets overlooked is that if we look at the sort of raw numbers in terms of who comprises the victims of sexual assault within the US military, the vast majority of the victims are men. So really the, the problem of sexual assault within the US military is about male-on-male violence. Um, so similarly, I think it's, it's again sort of related to the context that I'm studying, but um, quite different in, in some, some other ways. Um, there are two questions about the consequences of, of rape, both in terms of the psychological scars it might leave, um, and also <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of often asked about this question. Um, does rape during wartime increase rape in the post-war period so I wanted to say something kind of briefly about that um, my, my interest is really the dynamics of violence during conflict so again I'm sort of a consumer of some of the literature on on post-war consequences rather than a producer of it but the the there's sort of a conventional wisdom right now that if mass rape happens during a conflict that um, the aftermath is sort of devastating it's kind of in some ways often presented as permanently devastating. Countries are destroyed, families are destroyed, people are destroyed, women are ostracized from their families. Um, We may see reports of of increased rape um, by uh, former combatants who, when they return home, may be committing sexual assault against their own intimate partners. And there is some anecdotal evidence, some case evidence, to suggest that that does, in fact, happen. Um, in the case of the US military, there are some studies that show that when people have suffered trauma overseas and they return home, it's possible that veterans are more likely to commit into partner violence. Um, than people who never served or people who served but not in a way that left them traumatized. So there's a, there's we're sort of at a, a stage in collecting data and understanding what happens to people during wartime and the aftermath of wartime that there are a lot of open questions and not a lot of answers. Um, one of the issues though relates to kind of data, right? So in a place like Sierra Leone, um, we often see people, or Liberia as well. There's been a number of, of stories written about Liberia, including by people like Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times, um, who know that there is just an incredible amount of rape in sort of post civil war Liberia, including of very very young uh, victims. Right, um, and so there's some thought that this is related in some way to the war and whether it's directly related because people are returning um, are, are literally returning fighters or, or were themselves had served and they sort of were socialized into a new way of behaving sexually or, or viewing particularly women and girls um, that didn't exist prior to the war. I mean there's, there's sort of a lot of hypotheses around what potentially might be happening. Um, I think the problem is that we have such incredibly we have such an incredibly poor understanding of what life was like before the war Right, and it's quite possible that these kinds of events were actually common prior to the war, but there weren't the kinds of NGOs that care about this issue that spring up in incredibly large numbers in the aftermath of the war. Right, So we're sort of not collecting retrospective data in many cases. Um, so I, I think the answer is we just don't know what happens in the aftermath of, um, of mass rape wars. And I think there's, there's some danger to assuming just that um, after mass rape wars, people all go home and sort of commit sexual violence against their intimate partners. But certainly, there is a lot of it. Whether it's more or less than before the start of the war, and the way the war affected people, we just simply um, we d- we just don't really know. Um, and that I think hopefully we'll start to have kind of better clarity on that as we collect more and more data on that in the future.
0: Wonderful. Thank, Thank you so much. <laughs> Please join us next week. Uh, Kristen Vu-Miller, uh, who's the George Daniel Olds Professor in Economic and Social Institution and the Chair of the Political Science Department at Amherst College, is going to be talking about protection from gender violence as a civil right, the role of public enforcement, private action, and competing criminal justice priorities. So, as I promised, there are themes that will continue, and we hope you'll have me back and join in the conversation. Thanks very much.